My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, the topic today is the story of Grubhub founder Mike Evans on remaking his life after the IPO of his company. Now, Mike took this company from startup to exit. That's the dream. That's the thing everybody lives for. But in the process, you know, it wasn't easy. And so he has this notebook out. It's called Hangry. And he talks about the process of building the business, the sacrifices, and how he decided to go on this huge trip around the country on a bicycle to find himself again. Now, Mike founded Grubhub in his spare bedroom and then grew it into the multi-billion dollar online food I guess, empire that it is today. It's now a household name. I've certainly used it. I bet many of you in the States have as well. And since leaving Grubhub, he founded Fixer.com, an on-demand handy person service focused on social impact. He lives in Chicago with his wife, daughter, and dog, and of course his bike, because this bike makes it into the book as well. And we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff today because Mike is very straight up and honest about his story. And he's a very bright guy, one of these MIT guys. So analytical, thoughtful, He's going to talk about the startup story, how he went from working at a startup as just kind of like an employee following the first dot-com crash in the early 2000s to starting this business and growing it to be massive. He's going to talk about what happens after you make all your dreams come true. What is the big lesson for all of us? The, I guess, you know, the point is you get to the top of the mountain. Guess what? There's nothing there. That's what he discovered. And he's going to talk about what he learned from that experience from this trip around the country on a bike and how he is doing things differently the second time around. Now, I do have a small ask for you, and the small ask is this. Go to my website, patrickmcginnis.com. We have fomosapiens.com too, but at patrickmcginnis.com, you can find tons of resources for entrepreneurs. I'm telling you, there's years worth of resources and they are free. So go check out the website while you're there. Maybe check out my socials, but just go there. It's so good. I promise you will find value. And that's all I want to really give you is value. All right. So with that said, now that you have a little homework assignment, Let's move on to the interview. Of course, I start every interview the same way, and I started with Mike exactly the way I like to by asking him this question. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? So I started Grubhub back in 2004, and fast forward a few years to 2007, and I had bootstrapped the business. I didn't take investment when I started the business. I I got it all the way up to half a million dollars in revenue. I was in two cities. We had just under a thousand restaurants signed up and hadn't taken investment. And there was this critical moment where I had to decide whether I was going to take venture capital investment or not. And I had a mentor. Uh, it was Chuck, who's, who he's Chuck Templeton, who founded OpenTable in 1998, which makes him like the grandfather of the internet, basically, right? Like 1998 was early enough that, um, you know, he's, he'd seen some stuff by the time 2004, which makes me kind of an, old, an older, like elder statesman, I guess, of the internet. And he sat me, we, were, we had breakfast and he sat me down. And he's like, don't take the investment for the money because you've already bootstrapped the business. You could grow it. You don't need investment cash. You could grow it and you'll own 100% of the business. You could do that. 
He said, the reason you take investment capital, and he, he sort of listed off like five reasons. He's like strategic partnerships and and employ, you can hire employees, better employees, because they have good connections and you get some expertise around the board. And all he had a bunch of reasons and, and he's like, cash is the least important. But the reason you, Mike Evans, should take the money is because you're very green and you haven't learned a lot. And, and a group of investors and a board of directors will push you and will challenge you and they'll see your blind spots. And if you can go into that with like this weird mix of humility and arrogance that you kind of have to have as a startup entrepreneur, um, you'll learn a lot and and you'll grow and you'll be pushed in uncomfortable ways. And so if that's interesting to you, then take the money. And if it's not interesting to you, if you want to coast, if you want to like cash in your chips, you know, pay off your debt, get you know, maybe pay off your house, you probably can just keep coasting in your current pace. Um, and so he he that was the decision. Do I take the money so that I grow personally? Or do I not? And I and I did, and it worked. It it did push me in a lot of ways, uncomfortable ways. Uh, there was there, and it wasn't all good. Some of it was painful, right? But um, but that was like a very clear crossroads in my life, where uh, take the money or don't take the money. And and I really appreciated Chuck pointing out that it was about personal growth more than it was about uh, you know, sort of becoming ultra wealthier or or having this big shiny startup. Those things ended up happening because I kind of overshot, but um, but that's not the reason I took the venture capital in the first place. Have you ever heard of this king versus rich trade-off thing? No, tell me about it. Okay, so it's kind of what you're talking about in a sense. There's a great book called The Founder's Dilemmas, and in it, there's this kind of two-by-two of the king versus rich. And the king is, I'm going to keep as much of this company to myself as I can. I'm going to have autonomy. I'm going to run this thing. I'm not going to be challenged. And, you know, it's my fiefdom. And then, you know, like a king, right? And then the rich is like the notion that you give up control, but in doing so, you bring more people into the fold. And if they're good people, and if you make the right decisions, then you can grow this thing much, much bigger. And so actually, even though you've given up, you can end up becoming much richer. And so it's interesting as you think about raising capital, obviously there's a lot of bad investors out there and people who aren't going to bring value to your company. But if you're willing to to give up some control in terms of hiring and getting the right capital partners, like you could grow the pie much bigger than you would in the alternative case. Yeah. I mean, what I'm talking about is, is that a little bit, right? but, but there's a, it's a little bit off because what I'm talking about is not just giving up the autonomy for wealth and for riches, but giving up the autonomy for personal growth, right? Yes. That the, the idea that that group of people that are, that is around, you can learn from that group of people. Um, if you're not too bullheaded, right? It's, you have to be a little bullheaded. You can't just be a total wet noodle, right? That's, that doesn't work for startups, but, um, figuring out how, when, when to listen and to accept that advice and when not to that, that's its own skill that I've had to learn along the way. I'm not sure I got it right, by the way, I'm still learning it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is that trade-off that, and, and I, and I like the idea in thinking of startups that, um, they're about more than wealth, right? Because businesses are a huge lever for change, whether you intend them to be or not. And so being intentional about what that change is, um, is actually really important, right? So I, I like to think about startups in terms of holistically, what kind of change are they creating in the world? Not just the wealth they create for the owners. So we just had this beautiful, evocative celebration of the beauty of a startup. I want to start this conversation with the beginning of your book starts with you quitting your job and you write, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, 
I'm going to unwind the 12 years of insane work that almost killed my marriage and left me utterly spent. End quote. So that's where we're going to start. Why did you decide to leave? Well, so I started Grubhub in my apartment and I went all the way through ringing the bell at the stock exchange. That's a really damn good finish line, right? And, and I think it's really important that people have goals and that those goals are personally defined and not spoon fed by any one of a hundred people who will spoon feed you a goal if you don't have it for yourself. And so, you know, my goal originally had been to pay off my school debt and I overshot that. Uh, and then it became, my goal became, I want Grubhub to, to be a positive force for independent restaurants. I want it to be more likely that a restaurant will be in business as a result of signing up with us than if we didn't exist. And every decision went along that path. As it got bigger and more pe- more owners, and, and I gave up more of this control, One of the, something unintended happened, which is as we got all the way to the point where we were going public, the public investor does not care about your social, like your social mission. It doesn't, the public investor doesn't care that I want the 70,000 independent restaurants my platform to work. They care that you sign that deal with Taco Bell, right? And that, and, and I realized that my ability to control the company in a positive direction towards helping independent restaurants was getting ever, was ever decreasing level of control. And it got to the point where it just wasn't going to be a thing that I could influence anymore. And so I said, well, why, why am I still here? Like, what am I, what am I doing here? Uh, I could, I could take this, take a step back, relax, and then maybe start something new with um with a little bit more intentionality around around designing the social impact like into the business model so it can't be divorced um and so then i so i decided i I was done um and and that's like the super thoughtful intentional rational answer there's another answer was i was stressed out and tired and i needed a break right like it just was really hard It, it people i i forgot um now that i'm doing it a second time i forgot how hard those first couple of years were and um, the demands on your time are like, you can't prioritize them. If you've got a board meeting and you have to prep for it, everything else gets pushed aside. Kids, family, mental health, all of it gets passed aside. And I was like, I don't, I don't need this anymore. I'm done. So, um, so I decided to, to step back um, instead of running a public company, which, was not, which wasn't really a thing I was interested in doing. Uh, and so that was, there was a, there was a lot, right? It's a potpourri of reasons, but on balance, all came to, it's time for me to move on. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. 
The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Was it? I mean, do you think there was a way to manage that? It's interesting because, you know, you clearly did well in the company. You took it public, financially independent, all that sort of stuff. One would think that you would have the mechanisms to be able to change things. Like, was this, did you try? Did you try like coaching? Was this more about your sort of workaholism? Was it something else? Like, was there a way to sustainably continue or are you just completely certain that it just wasn't sustainable anymore for you? Um, I'll flip that around on its head and I'll say, if you're going to be at a company, a public company and running it, and it's going to take you 60 hours a week, you got to have a really good reason to be there. And so I don't know that you need a good reason to leave. I think you need a good reason to stay. And sticking around because you're catching, catch, cashing in a huge paycheck is kind of a shitty thing to do. If you're not fully committed to it, I, I think you need a reason to stay. And uh, yeah, if I had, if there was a goal that I had in mind for the company and a direction I wanted to go, and I felt like there was a path from point A to point B, I probably would have stuck around and kept doing it. But, but I had I had achieved my goals, what I wanted to do with that business. And so I, I no longer had that driving reason to stay. Um, so on balance, that that's a good reason to leave. Also, I wanted to like go ride my bike across the country. Like I wanted like, woohoo, like I wanted the victory lap, right? And so, uh, and so I took it and it was great. It was a great decision. We're gonna talk about that. But before we do, I do wanna talk about the early days of Grubhub because one of the things that I really liked as I read the book, is the fact that you started this business while you had another job. So you we start this 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 story at a time that I remember well, which is like after the dot com bubble crash of 2000 2001. And you know, everybody's sort of like, "Oh my goodness, like there was this crazy euphoria." It's a little bit like what we're feeling right now. The market is coming down from a, a really crazy high. And so you have this nice and steady job at homefinder.com. And you're sitting in your cube and you come up with this idea, you're hungry one day, and you come up with the idea of Grubhub and you start working on this business while you have a steady day job, which for regular listeners know, that's something I wrote about in my first book, The 10% Entrepreneur. And so I love that because, you know, sometimes, you know, the old founder story of the garage and the brilliant idea and I quit everything, like you didn't do that. You took your own path. Talk a little bit about the way you built the company in the early days and, and, and this fact that you were able to bootstrap it, like for entrepreneurs right now who say, you know, I probably can't even raise capital. The market's terrible. Like, what are some of the things that that you did that other people could follow and learn from? Yeah. So, um, so there's a few things that happened early that I think were patterns that I would repeat. Um, so first, I'll talk about one thing that happened early, which is a pattern I didn't repeat the first time, which was I really slow rolled it. So I started in 2002. It was a hobby. I did it in the evenings. I wasn't making money. I I literally just wanted a pizza, and like I didn't like the drawer of menus. 
Do you remember there was a movie in like 1994 or five called The Net and it had Sandra Bullock in it? Sandra Bullock. Yeah, yeah of course. And, there, and yeah. there's like this super secret like they're trying. She orders a pizza online in the movie. And that was like in 1995. So fast forward to 2002, and I'm like, yeah. how does this not exist yet? Wow, it's Visionary. 2002. The internet's <laughs> been around forever, and it's funny yeah. to say that now because that was, you know, now almost 20 years ago. Uh, but I was like, I was annoyed that it didn't didn't exist, and so I'm I made it for myself because I I don't like cooking, right? And so there was like a year between I made it for myself and I just kept tinkering with it, and that first sale to a restaurant where I sold like a, uh, well, actually my, my business partner, Matt actually sold the first restaurant. And so there was like a sort of a slow roll. I, I was indexed on, you know, I got the website indexed on Google, but more importantly, MSN and Yahoo, which at the time were bigger, which is again, yeah, so I know I remember it's crazy. Yeah. And like Alta Vista. <laughs> yeah. I, I Lycos. Yeah. I made sure that it was indexed on all those websites, uh, on all those search engines. And, uh, and it started getting some traffic and then, um, you know, it had some features, but it was because you, one of the things a lot of people can't do is, you know, I have a software and so I'm a software engineer. I have a master's in computer science from MIT, right? So I can write software all day long. And so one of the things that people have to get investment for is they have to find a technical co-founder to go write the software. I didn't have that problem. I just coded it myself, right? And and I, but I also had to do the sales. I had to do everything myself. So there's what the path of bootstrapping, doing it yourself is the path of doing everything yourself. You have to do marketing, sales, engineering, janitorial, legal, banking, like you have to do it all. So among that set of things, and, and this is the pattern that I repeated the second time, you know, when I, when that first restaurant got sold and I got that check for 140 bucks, it was like weeks, it was like two weeks and I quit my job and I got a selling for dummies book from Borders and I just went nuts because it wasn't like, I wasn't like metaphorically hungry. I was physically actually hungry and I went into restaurants and I tried to sell them. And if I didn't leave with a page, with a check, I at least left with food. Right. So it, th that like, there was like, I have a friend that's, that says, you know, shoot, shoot bullets before you shoot cannonballs. And, and like, I had shot a few bu bullets. And then once I got that check, then it was, I was all in. And, and then at that point it was all about revenue. I wasn't doing marketing uh, trying to find out if there was a market for the business and doing surveys and all this and you know, market research and all this stuff. I was just selling, you know, the, the easiest thing you can get a potential customer to say is, yeah, I'd probably buy that. The hardest thing is here's a check. And, and that second thing is a hundred times harder than the first thing. And so going and asking people if they might buy a product isn't very helpful, but going and selling it to them and getting a check is a really good validation. And actually the second valid this, if you can get the second check, from the same customer, if you delivered enough value to get a repeat purchase, then you know you really got something. It's not just I sold them on Charisma, like the product worked. So, um, so it was sort of a slow roll at start. I got a got a little basis going. I got some traffic on the website, and then and then it was a very quick. Once I made the transition, it became all consuming. I really like what you just said about the second check because I think it. You know, first of all. <laughs> We live in a, in a world now where it feels like everything's virtual. So like walking into a store and selling a software product to them feels so de delightfully retro, but it is something you can do today. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of great entrepreneurs that I know, like they recognize that being out into the field and talking to the customer and selling them on the spot face to face with the handshake now that things are back open 
is the way to do it. So it is, you know, it is harder because it's scary to walk into that place and put yourself on the line and maybe get a no. But if you make the yes happen and then you actually get to the second yes, then you're on a roll. Yeah. Which is really powerful. Yeah. I, uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts about um, canvassing versus outbound sales versus inbound sales and all of that. And, and each one of them has you know, your, your highest probability of success. Like percentage of an individual sale being successful is highest if you just go meet face to face. But also the pain of rejection is the worst because then somebody mm. literally kicks you out of their, of their, well, in my case, in the restaurant, right? If you're okay, and then, but then you actually get more sales if you just call people and you're okay with getting rejected more frequently, but then the pain of that rejection isn't as bad, right? But when I went in and, and, and talked to people face-to-face, -face, you know, it, it was not just delightfully retro. I literally had printouts of what the screens looked like because I didn't want to get distracted by the, the digital interface. I wanted to just show them the value and talk to them. And actually, the most, the, the thing that worked, the, the line, the sales line that finally worked had nothing to do with the value of the product or the number of customers I was going to bring or any of that. It was literally, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. Take a chance on me. I, that wow. was the that was the golden line. That was the line that closed 70 percent of the rest of the first hundred restaurants. It wasn't about cramming data down their throat. It was about a relationship. Uh, and so you can't it's hard to do that over the phone. Uh, so I walked down Clark Street in Chicago and and just signed up a bunch of restaurants that way. That's fantastic. That is, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. That is, that this is, we oftentimes think we have to sell the product so hard. You have to have a product, but if you just look at somebody in the eye, entrepreneur to entrepreneur, you may get an unexpected outcome. FOMO. FOMO. You mentioned the bike trip. Now, Mike, if you look behind me, you can see my track right behind me here on the screen. Everybody, we get yeah, we're talking on video. So I am a, I started on the Peloton and then I moved to the road bike you know, thank you, pandemic, for that. So a lot of what this book about Hangry is about the fact that, you know, you leave your job and you go on this bike trip and it's, you know, it's this journey of discovery. So talk about, you know, why you did that and what you learned about life and about business. Oh, man. So we got like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> no. FOMO uh, sapiens yeah. have so, very short attention spans. <laughs> let me see if I can condense this down into just a little bit. I would say I didn't learn this, but I experienced it a few times. I, I experienced being present a few times mm -hmm. in ways that I had not doing a startup mm -hmm. where I was just riding in the mountains, just in the moment. And there's not really a lot to say about what I learned there because I, I was just I was just present. I was just in the moment and enjoying it. And I would say that that was maybe only a total of four hours in aggregate of the of the 79 days I was on this bike trip. Mm. But it was a very profound four hours, right? It happened over the course of, it probably happened three or four times, just for like half an hour at a time where I was just physically not totally exhausted, but, but getting tired. My brain, I just like took it all in. And, uh, and there's something really valuable about being able to be present. You know, in, in a startup, I'm always pushing. I'm always like, I can't sit still. I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. There's, there is a lot of FOMO. There's a lot of like anxiety about what happens if somebody comes along and eats my lunch. Right. And, uh, and so you push and push and push. And so I was trying to balance that with, you know, I did something pretty great. I can just sit and enjoy it. And so there was that moment. I think, you know, one of the things that I really, I was, I was attuned to as I was going across the country is, um, what makes a small town or, or a city? What, what makes one 
successful versus a ghost town. Mm. And independent businesses, as opposed to big box stores, made a huge difference in the vibrancy of the little, of the small towns I went through. And you could tell that there were individuals who fought. There's a chamber of commerce or an individual or a 4-H club or something where people were fighting for a vibrant downtown with independent shops and restaurants and community centers and auditoriums and things like that. And the one and and the ones that like sort of put the big box stores off by the interstate, like 15 miles away, they really did well. And this was like really on my mind because, you know, right as I was leaving Grubhub, the debate, I, I had been suppressing the debate around chains versus independent restaurants. And we had no, we had no chains when we went public. 70,000 restaurants, the biggest chain was, was Leona's in Chicago, which was like 10 stores. And, uh, and so I was thinking a lot about this, the independent entrepreneur versus the corporation. And seeing it in small town America was, was pretty impressive. I think the other thing that really struck me on the bike trip was, um, you know, if, if the news really represented the people that you meet as you go across the country, the news would be, you know, 29 minutes and 57 seconds out of a 30 minute show of people being kind and gracious and generous and wonderful. And it was amazing in town after town, people were so welcoming. And some of that might've been privileged. You know, I'm a white dude. Um, and maybe not everybody would have experienced that same level of welcomeness. And I, and I had other friends on the trip, you know, who were more, more who represents more diversity, who, um, who maybe didn't experience the same level of welcoming, but still mostly it was very welcoming. And so that was something that was really profound is everybody was super welcoming. And then those very, those same welcoming people, when they talked about the people two towns over, they're like, oh, those people, they're really unfriendly. And so this kind of concept of like, if you meet them, meet someone in person, they're really kind. But when it's far enough away to be other, they're, they're, they're quite critical and cynical of them. I experienced that again and again as well. And it was just sort of a, a, an amazing thing to see in town after town. And one more thing, one more thing. The American diner, like it serves like eggs and pancakes and, and hash browns. It's the same everywhere from Florida to Virginia to Kansas to Wyoming to Oregon. It's the same diner in every town. And it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> why do you why do you have a theory on that? I'm curious. I have no theory on that, but it's the same. You could literally take the same menu there. The hash browns differ slightly, but uh, it's just everyone will make over easy eggs across the entire country <laughs> who says americans don't have culture right <laughs> i love it the, my british friends who i met up on the trip were like they'll really just make the eggs any way you want they don't just serve them to you and say like eat it the way we make it I'm like, yeah no that's that's a thing they make the eggs the way you want them now you have a new business it's called fixer.com which is an on-demand handy person service and what's interesting here, unlike the old sort of uh, distributed labor model or like the Uber model, these are actually W-2 employees that have benefits and they're trained from scratch. I'm curious, why did you decide that this was going to be your next adventure? What was it about this business model? Was it connected to what you'd seen around the country? Like, how did you formulate this? Yeah, so um, so I don't have to cook anymore because I made Grow Hub. So that's, mm-hmm. that's good. But on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, I might still end up you know, assembling Ikea furniture or fixing the, the weather stripping on a door or whatever. And I was like, I, I think, I think that there's a problem here. Why can't I find a handy person? And you'd go on, I'd go on Thumbtack or Angie's List or Google and you get phone numbers and you call those phone numbers and you go to voicemail and then somebody might call you back. And 
fast forward a few weeks of just doing some some research on this, it really just comes down to there aren't enough tradespeople around to do the amount of work. And then that problem is getting worse. And so we said, well, if we take everything we learned, it was it was a team of uh, four of us who had been all been at Grubhub. If we take everything we learned about how to build a good app and consumer marketing and uh, really easy communication with customers, we take all that and layer it on top of the handy person world. That's half the solution. The other half of the solution is there aren't enough tradespeople. And so we have to train them from scratch. And unlike uh, some of the gig economy companies like Grubhub or Uber or DoorDash or whatever, um, the skill that that people need to have, it's not just out there in the marketplace and you can just sign people up. You know, it takes actually quite a bit to be able to go into somebody's home and diagnose problems and solve things. And so we knew there had to be training. And once we realized there had to be training, we said, well, these should be W-2 employees because retention actually is the most important element here. Um, training people from scratch and then giving them a great job so they stick around um, in a supply-constrained environment is the right move. And it's also, you know, we were looking for a business model. We had been talking about different business models. We were looking for one where the business model was also socially beneficial. And so creating a gender-inclusive path into the trades that's really accessible and somebody can use it as their first step maybe stay with us for a few years and then go on to get training as an electrician or a plumber or a crane operator or whatever, That that's a really big social benefit. It's also a huge competitive advantage, right? Like, because we have workers, we have people who are available to do the work. If you're in one of the cities we're in right now, you can go on fixer.com and you can get a handy person in two hours, right? And they are competent and trained and they clean up after themselves. And, and then you can order, you can have them come back, you know, the next day if you want. And that's just not possible through a marketplace model. You, you just don't have that level of availability and understanding of what the calendar and inventory and all of that is. And so we've created a really great product for consumers, but it's also really great for the people who do the work. Uh, and so um, that that whole thing was what we were trying to create. Uh, we've had we're, we're we're on our way. You know, the pandemic was a bit of a speed bump because we go into people's homes to fix things. But now that that's hopefully in our rearview mirror. <laughs> It's growing like crazy. We're in five cities, Chicago, Seattle, Phoenix, uh, Denver, and Dallas. And so hopefully by the end of next year, we'll probably be in closer to 15. Uh, yeah, so it, I mean, it's and, and it's a business where it's a great experience for the customer and it's a great social impact, uh, really good for the workers, the the my coworkers who, who are doing the work too. Yeah, and it treats people not like they're expendable, but that, you know, gives labor it's due in terms of something that is valued, which is really important. I mean, it's interesting you say social impact, and I, I agree with you because so much of the gig economy gives really nothing to the employee, right? It's just, it's a hustle. And it, we've gotten to a point in our society where giving people stable employment feels like social impact, which is kind of, kind of not where we want to be. So it's good to see that labor and that value-added labor is getting you know the, the respect that it's due. Of course, all labor should, but, but it's important. Yeah, I think um, the the two pieces of social impact that we're we're specifically driving one is is accessibility from a gender inclusive perspective mm -hmm. because it, if you don't have an uncle if you're not a dude who has an uncle who knows how to fix things it's very hard to get into the trades and so we're trying to fix that piece but the second piece is the economic mobility for people in the trades is is it's a very steep slope mm -hmm. so you know they start with us and and they're getting pretty significant raises anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20% per year for the for like three or four years. And then they're so employable, of course, they're going to go on and become an electrician. And, and you know, the 
the fixers who start with this, they, you know, they can make 60 grand a year their first year while they're being trained. And then by the time they leave, they can go find a job for 100 grand a year. And so the economic mobility for this kind of a position, if you compare it to the gig economy, the gig economy is great if you if you have limited availability and you're part time and you need to make some extra cash. It's great. But if it's a career and you're doing it 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, you do it for three years. You're no you're no more employable or no more marketable. You've learned no skills beyond what you started with. And that's not that's not the way our society is supposed to work. Like if you work at something 40 hours a week, you should be more employable and, and demand a higher rate at the end of it. And I think that that's the really dangerous trap of gig economy full-time positions. Now, Mike, we are entering a period where after, as I mentioned earlier, years of like exuberance and growth, the market for venture capital, for startups in general has pulled back. We'll see what it looks like in the end. It's kind of you know unclear where things are going to land. But what's your advice to entrepreneurs right now who are out there, they're in their series A or series B, or they're starting something, you know, given all of your experience, like what would you tell them to do to focus on i would use the same strategy i do use the same strategy for for venture capital as i did for finding an agent for my book which is beyond a certain point it's diminishing returns to hone your pitch and to hone your Mm -hmm. message because Mm -hmm. um what actually is more important is you need to get your the pitch you've created to the right set of ears the right decision maker that's true for both finding an agent and for finding a vc because they're they're gatekeepers, right? And so the the reason the, the, that means you need to reach out to one hundred or two hundred or a thousand. Like you, it needs to be a numbers game. And so um, it just takes a lot of reps and a lot of rejection, and you just got to hammer away at it. There's really no solution for that. And I think that that's really come home for me because um, because I created a multi billion dollar business already, right? I, I Grubhub went public at two and a half billion dollars, right? So anyone will take my call. I can get a video call with any VC whatsoever. But my close rates actually no better because all I'm doing is removing the first filter. Uh, and it just means I have to spend more time finding out that it's not a good match. So it's true for me too, especially in the current environment that uh, even though I can get anyone to take my call, getting to a close is just as hard as it was for that first investment at Grubhub back in 2006. Uh, and so it's a numbers game. You can't get discouraged by the rejections. You have to just keep going. And you, when an investor who decides it's not for you tells you why it's not for them, that advice is almost useless. I don't care. You're you're taking a shot. You're taking a shot from the cheap seats. You're not in the game. If you're in the game, I'm, I'll listen to your advice. But if if you're rejecting me. You might be rejecting me for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of what I'm offering. And so I'm just not going to take that with, I'll take it with a grain of salt. It's tough because the flip side of that is I've met an awful lot of entrepreneurs who have really bad ideas and they will not accept any coaching or, or feedback whatsoever. And so how do you know if you're one of those? How do you know if you're just wrong and resistant to feedback or you're tenacious and you're just going to keep going until you get a yes? I don't know the answer to that question. You might be a jerk. But like you still, it doesn't matter. The activity, the action item is still the same. Keep going, right? Hopefully you'll learn at some point along the way. All right. The book is Hangry, A Startup Journey. It's out now. You can find it at Amazon, at local booksellers. You can look all over the place. It's out everywhere. So go check it out. And if you want to find out more about Mike, go to MikeEvans.com. You can also find him on Twitter at M underscore Evans. Mike Evans, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.